0: Today's guest is Stephen Bright, PhD. Dr Bright has worked as a psychologist within the mental health and alcohol and other drug field for the past 15
1: years. Compared to other Western countries, Australia has the highest per capita usage rate of drugs like cocaine and also possibly MDMA.
0: He's dedicated his clinical and research career at Edith Cowan University to minimising harm related to drug use.
1: The nature of alcohol in terms of the way it disinhibits people and increases violence if you see two people out in the street having a fight you had to guess which drug they were on are they on alcohol or have they taken mdma certainly not mdma if they're punching up
0: in this episode you will learn about the current state of alcohol and drug use in australia including specifics related to cocaine and cannabis the relationship between drug use and mental health the current treatment paradigm for patients with mental health conditions how entheogens or psychedelics could help certain patients, how decriminalization and legalization of certain drugs could reduce drug-related harm, and plenty more. I hope you find this exchange as interesting and thought-provoking as I did. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal, or optimal. I've checked InsideTracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fibre, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emile. meal is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet, two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link, which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. As I understand it, you're a psychologist and an academic with an interest in alcohol and other drug use, finding ways to reduce drug related harm and psychedelic therapy for mental health. How did you become interested in all of these things? And and what are the, I guess, the burning questions that you've been interested in exploring so far through your career?
1: Yeah, so I became interested in the alcohol and other drug area first off, and that was through my own personal experiences, through um, my social groups, my family, and uh, essentially went to uni to become a psychologist to work in the alcohol and other drug treatment sector. And it was while I was working in the sector and also completing my PhD, which was really my, my, my research at that point was really focused on why um, why there was this discrepancy between the evidence when it comes to drug related harms and what the common narratives are in the community and sort of how that's being portrayed in the media, because. I guess through my undergraduate learnings, I'd realise that there, the information I was getting through my studies was quite different to that which I was being exposed to in the community and being exposed to in the media. And it was essentially it essentially was questioning the the utility of prohibition, prohibiting drugs, and whether that actually has more does more harm than good. Um, whether there's alternative approaches than prohibition, things like decriminalisation, harm reduction and um yeah just sort of sort of unpacking that and it was it was while i was um working in melbourne i'd left perth and i was working in melbourne still completing my phd i wanted to talk about the issue i was starting to see with new and emerging drugs back in 2009 so all of a sudden these new drugs like mephadrone and alphabet soup was starting to emerge in the scene. And I wanted a safe place to talk about this because given my PhD research, I realized if I talked about this at a mainstream conference and the media got wind of it, then these drugs were probably going to be banned. And and as I was saying, I don't think prohibition is, is necessarily the best way of dealing with these issues. And so while I was in Melbourne, I just surreptitiously came across this conference called Entheogenesis Australis, which seemed really unique and interesting. So I chucked in an abstract abstract was accepted and you know I went along to the conference and it was unlike any other conference that I'd been to it was an outdoor event for a start Um, it was kind of like a cross between a a festival and a conference that they had incredible speakers from all over the world particularly um, speakers from the US that were talking about um, the re-establishment of psilocybin research at John Hopkins University and I wasn't even aware that was happening. You know I meant to be an expert in this area, and I didn't realise the research had restarted again. And so it was not long after that that um that I was introduced to Dr. Rick Doblin, who heads up the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is he and Maps have essentially been um, spearheading, all of the research on MDMA to make it a you know, to, to make it a medicine in, that can be used in society, uh, a mainstream medicine, and from there, so about over ten years ago, that that meeting occurred, and from there became really interested in the area. And the reason for, for my interest was um, just the, the data from the first clinical trial that Rick presented showed an incredible effect of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy on post-traumatic stress disorder, and in alcohol and other drug treatment, um, PTSD is the norm rather than the exception. So, so many people with substance use issues have concurrent um, PTSD or, or other sort of underlying trauma, and my experience was that the prognosis wasn't great for these individuals. So the idea of an alternative treatment that might be more effective than what we're currently doing was very appealing, and, and that's sort of where I picked it up from.
0: Yeah, you kind of just touched on one of the questions that I had for you, which was, I have to imagine there is a large overlap between drug use, drug-related harm, and mental health conditions. Is that the case?
1: Absolutely. And so a lot of people that experience substance use-related issues have pre-existing trauma, and they're using substances as a way to manage um, the symptoms associated with their trauma, but it's other mental health issues as well. So depression, depression. Um, you know, essentially, psychoactive drugs are far more effective than the current arsenal that we have of psychotropic medications to treat things like depression. They they provide instant relief from depression, but of course, they're they're, they're not treatments. They're just short term fixes, and actually exacerbate the mental health condition in the long run. So. Yeah, whether it's, whether it's an anxiety disorder or depression or, or PTSD, there, there's the, the, the idea of comorbidity or coexisting mental health conditions with substance use disorders is, is the norm, not the exception.
0: There was a lot you mentioned there at the outset and some things that I want to put a pin in and come back to, make sure we come back to revisit towards the end of this conversation, particularly decriminalization and legalization mm-hmm. and what that could look like. Um before we get there, can you paint the picture for us of, of what does the current landscape look like here in Australia with regards to alcohol and, and other drug use at the moment? And how does this compare to other Western countries?
1: Well Compared to other Western countries, Australia has the highest per capita usage rate of drugs like cocaine and also possibly MDMA. Um, So there's a huge demand for illicit drugs in Australia. And in terms of contrasting that with the the legal drugs like alcohol and tobacco, um, significant numbers of Australians experience harm from, from alcohol, be it from harm they've experienced themselves as someone who's drinking or harm they've experienced from somebody um, else who's been drinking and assaulted them or something like that. So something like, um, I, I can't remember, the, the stats, you know, sort of change, but it's somewhere around 1 in 10 or, or 1 in 25 people have experienced direct harm in the past 12 months. And that goes sort of against what the narrative is in the media. If The narrative in the media has really been over the last few years anyway, you know, the, the ice epidemic and that our h- hospitals are full of people with methamphetamine psychosis, and that absolutely is a problem. But if you go to any hospital in a metropolitan region on any Friday or Saturday night, there'll be far more people um, that are presenting with an injury or some sort of harm associated with alcohol than any other illicit drugs combined, all the illicit drugs combined.
0: I think you mentioned there that Australia has the highest per capita drug use. Did I hear that correctly?
1: Highest use of cocaine and MDMA.
0: What do you think is driving that? Is it is it education? Is it supply? I
1: think there's there's. I don't think we know, but I think there's lots of things that might be contributing to it, including um, just our culture. In terms of you know, if we look at our drinking culture, that often is applied to the way people use other drugs, and and our culture is one of you know binge drinking and basically getting effed up, getting getting messed up. Um, particularly in, in young adulthood. And that that is changing. There's there's cohort effects at the moment. Young people are drinking less than ever um, and are abstaining more than ever than we've we've seen since we've been recording data in Australia. Um, but but that culture, that binge drinking culture still remains. And I think um for a range of reasons, people are, are turning to illicit drugs rather than alcohol, inc- including the cost. it's it, it's a lot cheaper to go out and you know and use. MDMA as your drug of choice rather than um, binge drinking, particularly if you're going out and paying for, for for expensive drinks in a club environment. So, so that's another reason for it. And I, I think we, you know, we, we are. Fairly well off as a, as a middle class society, so people have disposable incomes that they're able to spend on illicit drugs. So there's there's an incredible demand for drugs in Australia. We we also pay more for our drugs than almost any country in the world, and that creates an incredibly lucrative business model um, for people that are supplying the drugs. You know, it's far more lucrative to bring drugs into Australia than any other country.
0: So is it simply a shift in terms of the choice of drug? That, that people are using f- away from alcohol towards other substances? Or if we look back over the last, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and compare that to today, do we see increased overall drug use about the same or reduced?
1: We, our data doesn't go back 50 years, but, um, you know, look, looking over the past 10 or 20 years, there, there's there's minor fluctuations, but there's no clear trends in terms of um, increasing drug use, so it's remained relatively stable. And some people have suggested that the cohort effect we're seeing with young people in Australia not drinking, uh, you know, their response will be, oh yeah, that's because they're using other drugs. But we're not really seeing an uptake in young people using other drugs, so that's not really a good explanation for why young people are drinking less. Yeah, th- things have things have remained relatively stable, even with methamphetamine. Use of methamphetamine's gone down in the past uh, ten, fifteen years. It hasn't gone up, despite what you might read in the newspaper.
0: So, why is it that you think the the media is not accurately portraying the current climate, current situation here, and what you're seeing in the evidence?
1: Well, if we go back many years, sixty, seventy years, when The first concerns about tobacco smoking and cancer were being raised in the medical literature. Many newspapers didn't report on this because they had sponsorship from tobacco companies. And so there, there was a vested interest in them keeping quiet about the story, or at least you know putting it on page sixteen and not on the front cover of the newspaper. And we, we have a situa- similar situation today with alcohol. Um, a lot of revenue from from um, media companies comes from alcohol uh, companies, and. You know, obviously they have a vested interest in in not perpetuating a narrative that alcohol is causing significant harm in the Australian community. And on top of that, I think it, it goes against, you know, if you speak to the average journalist, that, that the average journalist probably enjoys a few drinks and doesn't see that alcohol is a particular issue for them. And we tend to scapegoat other drugs and and people who use other drugs, because it takes it, it takes the heat off our own drug use by by focusing on that other drug use. Um, and likewise, I think that's why the narrative around um, cocaine use, which, which has actually increased. You know, we were talking about changes. One one distinctive change has been the increase in cocaine use, such that we are now number one in the world per capita in terms of our consumption. Um, you know, cocaine tends to be used by people who are more well off. So be it um, lawyers, magistrates, journalists, etc. And and again, like alcohol, um, if if cocaine is your drug of choice and you're a journalist, then you're probably not going to think that you're probably not going to want to cover that that sort of story. It would kind of go against your own personal vibe of of what's the right thing to report on.
0: You say Australia has the highest per capita cocaine use in the world. I think that might be news to some people. Has anyone quantified that? You know, when, when I think of alcohol, you know, often there's statistics thrown around about the, the average number of, of standard drinks someone has in a week. How much cocaine is the average Australian having per week?
1: It is difficult to quantify that. So the, the, there's two ways that we can get data on um, population based usage. The. the the main way that we obtain that information and the traditional way of obtaining it is through um, self-report. So we do a national survey every three or four years um, and, you know, survey some 20, 30 30,000 Australians from all different parts of Australian society so that we can make generalisations to the population based on that. But of course, there's there's limitations in in getting information through self-report. There might be under-reporting, for example, because as as humans, we tend to over-report good things like charitable donations. We tend to under-report bad things like how often we eat junk food or, or, or use cocaine, potentially. Um, the other way, that we that that is more recently being used to sort of gather this information is wastewater um, analysis. So they. Um uh, you know, re- researchers are taking samples from sewerage and um, looking at how much uh, cocaine and other metabolites of drugs are in the samples. And from there, they're trying to estimate population parameters. But again, there's some limitations in that because, of course, not everybody uses cocaine. and And even what goes down the toilet isn't necessarily a representation of what people are using. For example, if I'm carrying a kilo of cocaine at my house and the police turn up at my door, I'm probably going to flush it down the toilet, and that's going to end up in the wastewater analysis, perhaps inflating the amount of, you know that that we think the average person is using. So, I guess the, the answer to your question is it, it's very difficult to to know. Um, sort of what the average Australian who uses cocaine, how much they're using. And we, we've got an idea of frequency, how frequently people are using. You know, most people aren't using it more than um, once a month. It's an occasional thing. It's not a It's not a regular thing. Uh, but we don't – yeah, it, it's hard to get good data on this.
0: There's some interesting analyses done in the nutrition space where uh, – you know, there's observational studies where there are food frequency questionnaires, but sometimes the researchers get like a subgroup of people and do blood work, for example, and look at essential fatty acids in the blood that we know that the body can't produce they must be coming through diet so it's a it's kind of a neat way to verify that what you're seeing in the questionnaire data is accurate. how this is just a question for my own personal interest, but how long is cocaine in our system and could a similar thing be done there with blood
1: or with hair samples or something? So pretty much all drugs, except for cannabis, which I'll talk about in a moment, pretty much all drugs are eliminated from the human body within about three days. So it does make that sort of testing um, problematic. One way of overcoming that is um, testing hair. Um I'm not clear on the accuracy of that, but um, that's certainly one way around that problem. And as I said, cannabis is a bit different because cannabis is lipophilic, which means it it likes fat. It it, it can be stored in fat, Um, whereas most drugs are more... um, they tend to be more water-soluble than fat-soluble. And as a consequence, um, cannabis can stay in the system for up to three months after a person's last use. So for someone that's just smoking a joint um, you know once a year it might stay in their system for a week or two weeks but somebody that's using cannabis regularly it will stay in their system for up to three months and and that creates problems in terms of drug testing at mine sites and places like that because we've seen a shift away from cannabis to other drugs which stay in the system for a shorter period for example like cocaine so people who are using cannabis previously once drug testing is implemented they shift to um, a drug like methamphetamine or cocaine or even some of the new and emerging drugs, knowing that the the drug tests that they might have to do uh, in the next couple of weeks um, won't detect some of these new drugs. And that's essentially why we saw synthetic cannabis take off in 2010, 11, 12 in Australia. It was because uh, people... Many people were, were looking for a way to, um, to, to, to get a cannabis-like effect, but without it resulting in a positive drug screen for cannabis, be that it's not just mining sector, it's you know, other workplaces do it, but also courts do testing, um, I- including family courts, so people in custody disputes, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, I've sort of gone, gone off on a tangent there about, about the problems of, of drug testing,
0: is synthetic cannabis, excuse my ignorance here, is that considered an illicit substance or is that completely legal?
1: Well, as a consequence of what went down in those uh, sort of 2011, 12, 13 13- 14, I think 2016 in Victoria, or maybe a bit earlier in here in Western Australia. I was in Victoria in 2016, that's why I remember that date. Essentially, um, all of the states and at the Commonwealth level, there's there's been a legislative change made that's often called a blanket ban on psychoactive substances. And depending on your jurisdiction in Australia, the the, the blanket ban is slightly differently worded, but in general. Um, this law prohibits anything that has a psychoactive effect, excluding alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, um, drugs approved by the FDA, herbs and spices, because there's certain herbs and spices that are that are psychoactive. Um, and other other um, other states might even regulate based on the chemical structure. So if it's similar enough in chemical structure, then it would be considered an illegal drug. And an example of that is, is Queensland has one of the, the strictest blanket bans, meaning that a chemical called tyrosine, um, which is contained in cheese and avocados, is technically considered illegal in Queensland. And I, I, I um, worked with a lawyer a couple of years ago, um, I am pretty sure it was Greg Barnes um where we we yeah we did some reporting around this and the absurdity of the, the Queensland legislative change essentially banning uh, you know cheese and avocados and the attorney general in Queensland came out stating that you know obviously that that's not the intention of the law but ultimately um when you when you a law that's being put in place should be fairly black and white there shouldn't be shades of gray like okay avocados are technically illegal but we're not going to prosecute anyone for that because that's silly
0: yeah, what a strange world that would be if you were pulled over by police because you had a, a tray of avocados. <laughs> <laughs> so, cocaine use is is increasing. Cannabis use is cannabis the most used uh, drug uh, outside of alcohol.
1: Correct. Uh, yeah, correct. It's the it's the most used. Illegal drug, and and you're probably right. It's probably the most used drug outside of alcohol. Maybe some prescription medications might come close, Um, but you know, essentially, the the most used drug in Australia is caffeine, followed by alcohol, um, and then then as you say, uh, cannabis. And rates of cannabis use remain fairly stable about um about one in three Australians have tried cannabis in their lifetime, and um you know one in ten or or slightly more than one in ten have tried can used cannabis in the past twelve months.
0: And do we know much about that population? Are there things, characteristics about people that are regularly using cannabis that would distinguish them or separate them from people who are not, whether that be socioeconomic status or uh, mental health or other.
1: Yeah, all, all of those things predispose an individual to um, to regularly use cannabis. So, yeah, lower socioeconomic status, um, pre-existing mental health condition, uh, or or, or pre, pre, predispose somebody to um to to end up using cannabis on a regular basis but there's you know looking at the, the that population versus the general population there's not there's not a whole lot of big differences there we know that regular heavy long term cannabis use does impact cognitive functioning so um you know, you know pe- people's um, people's functioning on IQ tests will be will be lower, but it tends to be a temporary thing. And if the person, provided they they didn't start it. You know, eight years of age, it tends to be reversible, um, which is not the case, say, with alcohol. Alcohol cur- causes permanent brain damage. Um, Cannabis—the way I like to describe cannabis and and its effects on the brain—is—is—is is, is, is it's a bit like putting jello in the brain. Like it slows everything down, but once you clean it out, the brain fires up and it's it's functioning as per normal. I think clinic. Clinically speaking, one of the most concerning things about people who regularly smoke cannabis is just the amotivation. You know, people become less motivated to get off the couch and do things. And, um, it's not only i guess when i was saying that i was thinking more about um you know productivity engaging with society paying taxes all of those sorts of things but it's it's even more than that it's it's things like physical activity um, you know we, we know sedentary behavior is 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 is, is a, it's correlated with nothing good that's for sure
0: right so it can it can have a ripple effect and start to affect other aspects of one's lifestyle, which then affect quality of life, risk of disease, et cetera. You you mentioned heavy use. What would heavy use, how would we define that? What would that be?
1: Heavy use would be daily use for a start. So so using on a daily basis, um, using multiple times Each day, and typically with regular heavy cannabis use, people start to experience um, problems with sleep. So they, they, without cannabis, they can't sleep, and they may wake up during the night to to smoke some cannabis to be able to get back to sleep again.
0: How does someone kind of break that cycle if they are using cannabis to you know to sort of fight or push back against insomnia and it's working, but they would rather not have to rely on cannabis? Now, what are the steps that, that someone might go through or things that you've you've done with patients that you've worked with clinically
1: yeah I think I think there's there's lots of different options and so starting at one end of the spectrum which is the the least invasive I guess would be to take a harm reduction approach and um, access cannabis through um, a, a medical regulated source and perhaps changing the route of administration from either going from smoking to vaping um uh, which is far less harmful or ideally um moving to an oral route of administration because the way cannabis works when it's consumed orally is quite different to the way it's used when it's vaporized or smoked and consequently um people people find that they use far less frequently when they when they're taking it orally so that, i guess that's one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum would be um looking at abstinence and and Traditionally, um, detoxification services in Australia haven't accepted people for cannabis withdrawal if they want to cease completely. So usually it's done by the individual in consultation with uh, a general practitioner and uh, probably um, a nurse working for an alcohol another drug treatment service or an AOD counsellor or psychologist like myself. Um where the GP prescribes minimal amounts of medication, things like Tamazepam or Valium, to, to help take the edge off for that period of withdrawal. Because, um, as I was sort of saying it earlier on, because cannabis is, is lipophilic and stays in the system for much longer, the withdrawal from cannabis is, is quite cont- protracted. So with most drugs, you know, withdrawal peaks after two or three days of ceasing use. Um... Though with cannabis, it doesn't peak till about 10, 12, 14 days after the person stops. So it's, it's far more gradual, but it's far more um, extended. And that's why detoxification services have typically not taken people for cannabis because they're set up for a two-week um, stay, for because that's what works for most other drugs. But of course, they're then discharging people with cannabis while they're peaking in terms of the withdrawal. And so most of the time it's being managed in the community, as, as I've said. Um, during the, the peak of synthetic cannabis, though, um, I worked with a number of detoxification services to allow, to ensure that they were able to take um, people in that were wanting to abstain from synthetic cannabis because it was a completely different drug. Some people have said it shouldn't even be called synthetic cannabis. Essentially, these are synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists, novel drugs that are being put on some parsley or, or, or you know whatnot, an inert herb to, to be smoked. And consequently, like the traditional drugs, the, the, the withdrawal peaked at about two or three days. And for some of the newer generation synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists, the withdrawal was was quite severe and, and could include things like seizures, which is where you really want medical involvement. When we're talking about withdrawal from drugs, um, you know the the, the the most dangerous drugs to stop taking are alcohol. And benzodiazepines, things like Valium, Xanax, because they cause these seizures, and so seeing that in another new drug that was emerging was a real concern at the time, and which was why um, we really advocated for detoxification services to take on these patients because they were at an elevated risk of experiencing um, something going wrong medically if they didn't have that medical supervision.
0: You mentioned that vaping is less harmful. Tell me a little more about that, and and. I presume that there have been scientific investigations looking at the, the, the different risks posed by more traditional smoking versus vaping. When I kind of just think about this, and this is not scientific, just observation of people in society and friends that, that vape. One thing that kind of worries me is that because it is a little more acceptable and convenient, that perhaps the person ends up actually inhaling a lot more tobacco or a lot more cannabis than they otherwise would have.
1: Yeah. I, I I would normally try to avoid talking about vaping, but I open up the conversation here, so I'll wear that. <laughs> the, the, the reason I try to avoid it is... In my 20 plus years of working in healthcare and public health, I've never seen an issue divide my community the way vaping has. There are you know, staunch advocates for this being a life-saving intervention for smokers. And then on the other side, um, there, there's people concerned about so many young people taking up vaping and it, and it becoming basically the new norm, the new smoking and and what do we do about that? And you know I, I see both positions. I, I think, um, absolutely, it can be a life-saving intervention. It, it, it's you, you asked about the research. The the British Medical Association has concluded that vaping um, vaping nicotine is ninety five percent less harmful than smoking tobacco. So that's a significant reduction. Um, but I also really understand the the other the other side's concerns as well. I don't want young people to be dependent on nicotine. I think we've got a huge problem in Australia with um, with black market vapes being distributed um, with to young people in schools. Schools across Australia are trying to deal with the issue. Governments trying to deal with the issue. Unfortunately, I think. We've we've left it too late. It, it's already in the community now. Australia needed to act ten years ago, not now. Um, the the US and the UK all regulated vaping ten plus years ago. The Australian TGA wasn't willing to do that because they were concerned um, about you know it, basically they said well there's still five percent harm, ninety five percent less harmful still means five percent harm, and we're not willing to 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 Take that risk and be responsible for that, but in not in doing nothing, that inaction has now led to the current situation where um because there was no regulation in place, it was it, you know a black market emerged, and once the black market is set up, it's very hard to 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 shift that. and I, i'm 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 not real optimistic about where this is all going. I think we're going to see vaping um in the community for a long time to come now.
0: Yeah, and they're making them to taste so good, right? Which, you know, there's parallels there with the food industry and marketing early in life to kids. And then once, once they begin to develop those habits, they're very hard to, to change later on in life. You mentioned earlier that there is an overlap between you know, drug use, drug-related harm, and mental health. What is the current state of, of Australia's mental health? Are we doing better or worse than decades gone by? I think you know, sometimes you hear in the media that there's a mental health kind of pandemic or epidemic. Is that true or is it just that we're getting better at screening and we're being more proactive and we're educating people to feel more comfortable about their, their struggles, talking about their struggles rather than suffering in silence?
1: I think it's a real mixed bag. Um, I think in many respects, we're doing far better than we were when it comes to mental health. There's far less stigma associated with it. The way I see my students talking about mental health in class and even disclosing um, about their own mental health issues or medications that they're taking, that wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. So yes, on one hand, I think we're doing a lot better. I do think the the so called mental health crisis, a bit like the ice epidemic, is is something that is overstated. Um, and and uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm probably haven't thought about it enough. But I'm not sure where the vested interests are there for perpetuating that narrative. I, I think part of it comes from um, you know the healthcare professionals like myself, particularly those working in private practice, um, you know, arguing that we need more support from the government um, to to provide. Funding for people to access their their business, their their, their psychological services, but yeah, it, it definitely has been overstated. The data isn't showing that there's been a significant increase in mental health um, issues in the community. However, it's 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 getting harder and harder to access. Mental health services. So, the, the, I'm not sure if the demand is increasing or the, the, probably it's a combination of demand increasing without adequate increase in supply of mental health services. And consequently, wait lists to access um, psychiatrists or even some psychologists uh, are getting up to six or 12 months now um, to be able to see someone, which simply isn't good enough. You, you, when a person is reaching out for help. We need to provide that help as soon as possible um, because – People's perception of um, their situation and their readiness to change fluctuates incredibly, and so when when people are reaching out, they're ready to do something. Now is the time to to engage with that individual, not put them on a wait list for six to twelve months, and after which time, um, unfortunately, or or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, their, their mental health condition may have improved significantly just spontaneously. Um, that you know, that that's the nature of of some conditions. Like a a depressive episode may lift on its own without intervention. Um, obviously, many times it requires intervention. But that's not a that's not really a that's a pretty sad state of affairs. If people are getting better just because we don't have the capacity to see them in time.
0: So, what can be done in that space to ensure greater and earlier access to the, to psychiatrists and psychologists?
1: It's a huge problem. I, I I don't have an answer but I can explain some of the nuance in terms of the problem. So both with, with psychology and psychiatry, um, there are a number of bottlenecks in terms of the training um, that's that's required that that, that people have to do to be able to work in the community as as those practitioners so with psychology for example um people in people enroll in a, a, a an undergraduate degree um a three-year three-year degree and you might have i don't know 400 students each year enroll in that degree um but that, you need more than that to become a psychologist, you need at least five years of study. So then at the fourth year, there's only 40 places. So only 10% of those 400 students will get into fourth year, and then fifth year and sixth year is is even more competitive. Um, so the pathway I went through was a, was a six year pathway, and it was bloody competitive when I went through it 20 plus years ago, and it's, it's just gotten so much more competitive. I have um, former honors students, so fourth year students that have traveled around the country to secure a place in uh, in a clinical training program, which was unheard of when when I went through it twenty years ago, and the reason there are limited places uh, is because there's not enough. Um, practitioners in the community to supervise people that are in these training programs. So you can see it starts to create a vicious cycle. We don't have enough places for people um, because we don't have enough practitioners in the community, and we're not increasing the number of practitioners in the community because we can't push enough people through these courses. And it's the, basically the same with with psychiatry, but with different um uh, different points in the bottleneck, but this same problem where very few people actually are, are able to to get through and 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 work as a psychiatrist.
0: Maybe technology is the answer, AI, to to help kind of alleviate that bottleneck.
1: Yeah, I, I I think solutions that are outside of the box like that are what are what are required because it is this this self perpetuating problem and. I don't know anybody that I've spoken to that's got a clear solution to it. So, yeah, I I think some out-of-the-box thinking is going to be required because if we don't do something soon, the problem's only going to get worse.
0: If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Insight Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics and biometric data from Harvard, MIT and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Insight Tracker's ultimate plan and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com/simon. That's insidetracker.com/simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so let's assume that I have access to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, Let's assume that I think I have depression. When I reach out to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and I, I get a consult with them, what does the typical treatment journey look like for someone today? I think earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that we need to have more tools and and perhaps this is where your interest in psychedelic medicine sort of stems from. But I'm interested here in what, what the current paradigm looks like. What is evidence-based sort of... Uh, Best practice for someone who presents currently in Australia with a mental health condition.
1: I think at the moment in Australia, there's a discrepancy between best practice and what's actually happening on the ground. So most people with, uh, using the example with major depressive disorder, most people with depression are going to access help through a GP. That's that's the it's a prim- it's primary healthcare. It's the first point of call, and. Um, Unfortunately, uh, many GPs will respond to a patient presenting with depressive symptoms by prescribing an antidepressant medication. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the per capita use of, of cocaine. The per capita prescribing of antidepressants in Australia is 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 high. I'm not sure where we're ranked in the world, but we'd be in the top ten. We we are we consume lots of antidepressant medication, and antidepressants are effective for people um, with severe depression, in fact, they can be life-saving. It can be the difference between someone taking their life and not taking their life. So these are absolutely life-saving drugs, but they're being overprescribed and they're being prescribed to people that, that might not even have depression. They might have a situation that's leading them to feel stressed and anxious and, and stuck, but they're actually not depressed. It's situational, and providing them with an antidepressant drug is, is not going to solve the problem. They need to actually fix the problem that's causing them to feel that. That way, and one of the problems with antidepressant medications is they can be quite difficult to um, come off. So a number of um, a number of my patients have uh, not have tried to come off an antidepressant and not being able to come off, not only because of the the depression relapsing, but because of other symptoms um, caused basically withdrawal. But we don't call it withdrawal when we're talking about antidepressants. Instead, we've come up with this medical euphemism called discontinuation syndrome, which is it's essentially the same thing. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think that's a concern. And and then comparing that with best practice. And look, there are some good GPS out there that that. Um, the, the medication would not be their first line of treatment, so I just want to make that clear. There's certainly, not all GPs are doing this, and and to be fair on the GPs that are, we 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 uh, you know we 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 live in generation medication. People go to a GP and they want a medication. If you don't walk out with a script and you've paid for a G- disappointment, you, you're probably going to feel like you've been hard done by. And these people are try- these doctors are trying to run businesses, so I, I really get that. But best practice would be um, to set up a mental health care plan with the person so that they're able to be referred to a psychologist um, to engage in talk-based therapies, so cognitive behavioural therapy or, or any other based um, psychological intervention. And for most people, that psychological intervention is all that's required for their depression to re- remit. Um, some people have treatment-resistant depression, and that's where things like these new treatments with psychedelics are showing potential promise. Um, but, but essentially, wh- yeah, whether it's depression or PTSD or substance use, the first-line treatment should always be an evidence-based psychotherapy. And then medications can be used to augment that. So we know that people do do better so, so people that are just prescribed the medication will see some improvement. People that, um, that do the evidence-based psychotherapy will see some improvement, maybe some more improvement. And if you combine them together, you get even more improvement. So but if, if somebody's got quite severe depression, maybe the GP then needs to both do a referral um, to, to the psychologist via a mental health care plan and prescribe some medication. And if none of this seems to be working, then the GP can make a referral to a psychiatrist.
0: You said most people will get benefit from psychotherapy so cognitive behavioral therapy being an example of psychotherapy do you have a sense for what percentage of people are slipping through the cracks where the current treatment approach best practice psychotherapy using cognitive behavioral therapy and other therapies What is the percentage of people with depression or anxiety or PTSD, that type of treatment is not helping or not helping enough?
1: Yeah. So, so it's very much dependent on the condition. So with some mental health conditions, we have very effective treatments. So psychology has learned how to treat phobias and panic disorder very well. Um, response rates upwards of 90%. So less than 10% of people are not responding to these treatments. And I, I guess, you know, phobia may be something that's less debilitating but panic disorder is essentially when somebody has a phobia of their own internal sensations their experience when you, when you if you have a phobia of spiders and you see a spider you're having a panic attack because you see the spider and that triggers the panic attack with panic disorder there's nothing there's no external stimulus that's triggering the the panic attack. And so, understandably, people, um, not knowing when it's going to happen, it's very unpredictable, they just randomly have this panic attack for no apparent reason, Become uh, it starts to become debilitating and impacting when or where they will go out and, and things that they may not do anymore because they're concerned about having another panic attack. Um, and even with panic disorder, upwards of, of 90%, so less than 10% of people not responding to that um, exposure-based psychotherapy, then with things like depression, less effectiveness, but still, you know, maybe um, 30% of people don't respond to current treatments. And, and even a smaller amount of those people then have treatment-resistant depression, which means that they don't respond to, to uh, a number of, of treatments. Usually, typically, there's no standard definition. Um, I tend to, tend to call it uh, three treatments. So, they've tried at least one Evidence-based psychotherapy and two pharmacotherapies, two medications, or, or vice versa, something like that. Um, then, with conditions like PTSD, um, estimates are up to that up to fifty percent of people. Um, with PTSD, don't respond to those first-line evidence-based interventions, and so that's really where my interest with MDMA came about because that was my experience as well. A number of the people that I was tra- I, I was treating um, were not responding well to the treatments. Um, some people would find the exposure process that we do for for PTSD treatment to be overwhelming and, and want to drop out of treatment. Um, other people have ways of of um, of, of regulating themselves so as not to um, so sort of put on a mask, I guess. So they're not really reprocessing. like It looks like they're going through the motions, but they're not really doing that. And that really accounts for that 50%. And um, ultimately, it depends on other things. you know. So with substance use, for example, we know that prognosis is worse if you've got PTSD combined with a substance use disorder. And hence why I was seeing um, the poor outcomes where I was working. And, and, and as a consequence, there's quite a lot of variability in the estimates of um, how effective these treatments are. So, um anywhere between sort of 25 and 50% has been an estimate of of the number of people who respond to the, the existing treatments so 25% is very low but it depends on how you measure response and, and the research methodology so quite quite a lot large variation when it comes to estimates of PTSD but that was really my interest in in MTMA was because this was one of the mental health conditions for which psychology hadn't yet developed a, a treat that was good as our treatments for panic disorder, our treatments for depression, et cetera. This is an area where we need new treatments because the current treatments um, are not working for a number of people. And when that first line treatment doesn't work, um, oftentimes they they will be prescribed an antidepressant medication, which may treat some of the symptoms and provide some relief, but it's not not treating the cause of the PTSD, which uh, exposure-based CBT and EMD and other evidence-based treatments that they're, they're trying to address the root cause and MDMA therapy is the same it's actually trying to address the root cause rather than um, giving something giving somebody something they have to take on a daily basis just to manage the symptoms because essentially that's what I've seen in substance use treatment anyway that's why people are using the substances for the same reason that they would be prescribed an antidepressant obviously an antidepressant has uh, potentially a lot less side effects and Um, ideally is going to be less detrimental to the person's um, quality of life uh, than than psychoactive substances like alcohol are going to be. But ultimately, it's kind of the same thing. We're just putting – it's putting a Band-Aid on it rather than fixing the problem in the first place.
0: Right. Rather than going completely downstream to what was causing that mental health condition at the outset. I want to double click on psychedelic, psychedelic medicine. I think there'll be a range of responses right now running through people's heads who are listening. And there's a lot of stigma associated with these and perhaps some misunderstanding. You mentioned a term earlier, uh, entheogenesis. And I know in your bio, it, there's a, a term in there, entheogen. And I had never heard of this before. What what is an entheogen and and how, if at all, is it different to a psychedelic?
1: Um, they are really one and the same. In many respects, initially when I entered this space, I liked the term entheogen because it had less stigma attached to it. Why? Most people don't, like yourself, didn't know what it was. So it didn't have the stigma that psychedelics have attached to it. Essentially, an entheogen is something that – provides a spiritual experience from within, in like endogenous and theos, the theological. So it's creating this, this spiritual and mystical state from within, which is one of the key aspects of a psychedelic experience. It creates mystical experiences, which have been correlated with the outcomes in in um, treatment. So people who have a stronger mystical experience are more likely to get better. So there's, there's clearly something going on there. But over the years, I think I've come back to embracing the term psychedelic and trying to reclaim it um, as, as as a term to challenge that pre-existing stigma that's attached from the 60s and 70s. And and so, you know, when we set up Psychedelic Research Science and Science in Medicine, uh, a, a not-for-profit company um, is essentially established to get psychedelic research happening in Australia um, and, and you know we, we set that up in I think 2010 2011 so it's quite some time ago uh, well before any research was happening we, we thought it was best as a group to, to to really reclaim the term and put psychedelic in our name and I'm really glad that we did that now because it does seem like the tide has turned and all of a sudden there's less stigma associated with psychedelics probably the opposite now there's there's probably too much hype associated with them as potential treatments and you know they've been they're being, they're being um, profess to to solve everything from homelessness through to um, uh, traumatic brain injury. So there's there's a lot of hype out there at the moment, which is which is a completely separate issue than 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 the stigma itself.
0: So that stigma that you speak to, and and perhaps we can step back to the 1960s and have a quick chat about where some of that stems from. I think that was something you touched on. I would listen to one of your TEDx talks and. I, I got a sense that you were frustrated by the stigma which was perhaps getting in the way of research and funding for for research and approval from from ethics, right? To conduct studies. That was 2017. I think a year ago I had Professor Susan Rossell on from Swinburne, and we talked a little bit about MDMA and psilocybin and some of the the new research that had been published and changes with the TGA scheduling of these drugs. Have you been happy with the progress of psychedelic science in Australia since 2017, when that TEDx talk went up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The tide the tide turned uh, right right at 2017. We um, we reconvened in December 2017 at another Entheogenesis Australis conference um, and had. Many of the people in the room who were in the room when we first established Prism, um, we also had Ben Sessa from the UK, a well-known um, a well-known MDMA researcher. Um, I won't list all of the people that were in the room, but essentially, I mean, Rick, well, one more. Rick Doblin was in the room, um, and essentially, we we were sort of feeding back that we've been trying this for the last seven years. We're pushing shit up a hill with a stick. We're not getting anywhere, um, and and Rick Doblin was was quite. Forthcoming and direct, he said, "I established Maps in 1986, and it took me 20 years to establish to get the first clinical trial up and running. So, what you've been going for seven years? Not his words, my words. Um, you know, eat some, drink some concrete, and harden up. Um, but we, but we also came up with some some different ideas of of how we could." you know, different approaches we might not have thought of. And and consequently, two things came from that. One was the St. Vincent's psilocybin study, which has now been completed, looking at people with um, a terminal illness and and providing sort of existential um, relief from their suffering. And also the MDMA trial that um, that I'm Overseeing here at Edith Cowan University um, with the support of Prism and and you know community donations that have that have come from Prism. Um, that, and that was essentially the start of psychedelic science in Australia. Pretty much 2018 onwards saw the start of psychedelic science in Australia. And it's really burgeoned since then with folks like Susan Russell, um, uh, Paul Paul Lanatsky. Um, running the Monash Lab and, and other groups coming onto the scene. And I think we've got a very mature and a thriving psychedelic science community at the moment. Then things really changed in a dramatic way, again, sort of progressively, I guess. Uh, last year in February, when the TGA announced that they were going to reclassify MDMA and psilocybin as a Schedule 8 medicine for the treatment of PTSD and treatment resistant depression which makes us the first country in the world to recognize these drugs legislatively as medicines um you know in our medicines legislation which is which is huge but given that you know as as you were saying 2017 nothing was happening in Australia, we, we don't have the experience that other countries have, have had. You know, the US was doing research with psilocybin again back in 2006. Um, MAPS have run six phase two clinical trials, two phase three clinical trials. There are so many therapists in the US who have been trained to do this, so that if this were to happen in the US, which it probably will this year, the FDA is likely to approve MDMA as a medicine. They're ready to hit the ground running. Australia was not ready to hit the ground running. And consequently, you know um, the the legislative change came into effect on the first of July last year, and there's been recent media in the last week or two about the first person that's been treated under this scheme. So it's taken a long time for everything to come together, and the reason for that is we don't have the experience, we don't have. Training programs in place. We don't have the governance set up around how to how to manage this clinically um, out there in the community, which is very different to, to doing it in a clinical trial. And ultimately, I think the TGA was smart in their approach in that they've made it very restrictive. It, it's basically it's hard for a psychiatrist to become an authorized prescriber. They have to first develop, they have to identify a patient. Um, then develop a treatment protocol for that patient based on the literature and what's happening in clinical trials. Get that approved by a uh, human research ethics committee in Australia so that that – in itself that's a huge undertaking for a psychiatrist which may not who may not have research experience which you need to be able to do this and then you apply to the TGA to become an authorized prescriber and then you have to figure out how to actually import or access the, the drugs they're not these 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 are not widely available pharmaceuticals in Australia at the moment so there, there's a lot of barriers in place but I actually think that's not such a bad thing because we're not ready to hit the ground running and have you know this being prescribed at, at um at psychiatric offices around australia and ultimately while while i get that a lot of the excitement here is um you know these are new promising treatments that could be effective it doesn't overcome the problem we were talking about earlier with the 6 to 12 month wait list to be able to see somebody in the first place. So it's not fixing the problem. It's just putting another Band-Aid over here. And consequently, because there's been so much media hype around this, I'm genuinely concerned, given the cost at the moment of these potential treatments, so upwards of $25,000 per patient for one treatment, which is way out of reach for most Australians, particularly those with a mental health condition, that desperate people are going to do desperate things. And and the more people in the community hear about this and realise that they can't access it because they can't afford it or they can't access it because there's just simply not a clinic in their state yet, um, I worry that those folks will access these drugs illicitly, um, perhaps engage with underground um, you know, underground sham and underground healers that are operating all around Australia, and some of them are. I mean, some of them are um, good quality people. They, they're doing quality control. I recently heard that one of the patients I had excluded from our MDMA trial um, went out to seek psilocybin in the underground and was excluded by the by the practitioner. So, um, you know, clearly they were doing some quality control, but it's Russian roulette. There are some very problematic practitioners out there as well, and there's been reports of sexual abuse and all kinds of things happening there. So, you know from a harm reduction perspective it's not a great idea to fill people full of hope then tell them that they can't access these things because they will go out and find other ways to access them desperate people will do desperate things
0: yeah, well it seems you kind of need people working at both ends what the the science looking at new tools that can be effective and then at the at the level of accessibility in order to kind of to get these things out to the community and be used in the in the right context, get, remind us how successful or, or effective are drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, specifically speaking to those two because they're the ones that the TGA sort of rescheduled. but how effective are they for people who are deemed to, to have treatment resistant depression or uh, PTSD?
1: The short answer is we don't know, because there's a number of problems running clinical trials with these drugs. And consequently, we're seeing inflated or exaggerated benefits at the moment. Some of these problems are not being able to blind people. So normally, when you participate in a randomized controlled trial, um, you're either allocated to a placebo group or the active group. If you're in the placebo... Well, it doesn't matter what condition you're in, if, if you are administered MDMA in a clinical setting, within about half an hour, you're going to know which condition you've been allocated to, and so are the therapists and everybody else involved in the study. So you can't blind people to um, to, to what they are receiving, and this is a problem that we haven't really overcome in research yet you know, the rates of blinding are are not good. So when they do actually measure whether or not people can correctly guess what condition they are in, it's about 97, 98% of people guess the correct condition because it's pretty obvious. Um, And the reason this is a problem for estimating the effectiveness of the treatment is because there's so much positive information out there about these treatments. People are coming in with a lot of hope, And a lot of expectation. And so, if they are put in the psilocybin or the MDMA condition, fantastic. But given the nature of the placebo effect, if they expect this is going to be a, a very effective treatment, then it's going to impact the effectiveness of the treatment. In the same way, if you give someone a sugar pill and tell them it'll stop their back pain, it will stop some of their back pain. And then, if you're in the control condition and you think this is the end of the road, this is your last chance. To to um, to recover from your mental health condition, and you realise you're in the control group and you're not going to get the treatment. Well, that's going to mean that your symptoms are going to get worse, and so you end up with the people in the control uh, in the control group, um, you know, ending up reporting worse symptoms. People in the intervention group reporting even better symptoms than we would expect, creating a bigger divide and inflation of the effect size is technically what it's called. I was thinking at one point when we we're talking about the. Um, uh, you know the, the underground practitioners and and what's going on there and you sort of saying you sort of summarized it saying there was you know that you need both ends you need you need everything in here for for me that really that that sits really well with me because you know as somebody that's against prohibition and you know Pro decriminalisation and other and other ways of, of of dealing with with the with the drug issue, um, I, I I don't have a problem if if folks in the community want to go out and take a psychedelic drug or take any drug for that matter, provided they're not harming anybody else. That's fine. That's co- essentially it's called cognitive liberty, being able to you know think and change your mindset in any way you wish but this gets a lot more complex when we add in mental health because um the you know the the way in which these drugs work, they're experimental treatments at best at the moment. And so doing that in an unregulated environment outside of a clinical trial means that there's less control. And ultimately, if things do go pear-shaped, the person has got nowhere to report that to. Um, you know, you can't ring up APRA who who regulates all of the healthcare professionals and say, you know, this shaman needs to be deregistered. And I think the, the local Australian psychedelic community is really working hard at the moment to try to create a sort of self regulation system so that there's support systems in place for people accessing these services and they're able to report back and and this sort of a a um you know a a, a self a community based feedback loop to to try to stamp out some of the problematic practices and practitioners that are out there at the moment but yeah it creates a quandary for me because on one hand I think anybody should be able to do what they want when it comes to when it comes to a drug. Um, the the drug shouldn't be made illegal. Yet on the other hand, once we insert mental health and and call these mental health treatments, then the whole situation gets a whole lot more complex.
0: So it's it's difficult for us to quantify how effective these drugs are. Seem to be effective at some level, but you mentioned there it's hard to kind of tease out the placebo effect from the effect of the drug itself. How is it thought that these drugs, MDMA, psilocybin, are influencing physiology and
1: leading to some type of benefit? So MDMA is not a classic psychedelic. In fact, I wouldn't call it a psychedelic full stop. Um, you know, we, we talked about entheogen. One of the terms that I like, it's not particularly popular in you know in the mainstream, is intactogen for for MDMA. It's something that it, it's it's an empathogen, an intactogen. It creates empathy, but it, it it's very different both in its subjective effect and also the the new you know the way it works on the brain, very different to classic psychedelics. So classic psychedelics, including psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, dimethyltryptamine, I'll stop there, but could keep going on. Um, All of the classical psychedelics primarily work at a, a serotonin receptor site called the 2A receptor. And it's thought that, um, many of the effects are, are due to the binding at that site, and and it's probably a bit more complex than that because there's the odd 5-HT2A receptor agonist that, that doesn't produce a psychedelic effect. And, and there's research underway at the moment to create non-psychedelic psychedelics. So these are drugs that work the same way in the brain but don't actually produce the psychedelic experience because, understandably, that could... Be uh, you know a promising treatment. Many people, even who are um, desperate for relief, will be unwilling to go through the psychedelic experience because it's it's very unpredictable. That you can experience heaven and hell all within the same five minutes, and. That that can be quite uncomfortable. So the idea of having a non psychedelic psychedelic treatment, um, I, you know, I can see why that's appealing. Personally, I'm not sure it'll it'll work, but that's currently under investigation. Um, not sure whether human trials have started with any of those those new chemicals yet. Um. And 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 at a broader systems level, what the classic psychedelics are doing, possibly through that agonism of of the 5HT2A serotonin receptor site, is turning or dialing down the default mode network. So the default mode network is uh, it's it's basically uh, interconnected parts of the brain, and it's the, the default mode network. It's a bit like a brain conductor. We have multiple networks that are similar to this that are like conductors of the brain. And so it keeps everything sort of in sync, all of the different parts of the brain that it connects up with. And if you turn off the default mode network, then it creates a, c- a cacophony of noise um, because the systems aren't all in sync anymore. And it's hypothesized that that, that the noise that's created by that dialing down of, of the, the conductor um, results in... Uh, people being able to perceive themselves and their situation very differently, like it, re- it allows them to think outside of very rigid beliefs that they might have, say, with somebody with depression or um, a, a body dysmorphic disorder. And it may also explain the, the, the mystical experience that people have, um, sort of that that crosstalk that's happening in the brain, whereas MDMA um, doesn't operate on that receptor site at all. It tends to um, dial down the limbic system, which is the part of the brain associated with with fear response and other emotions. It allows people to sit with unpleasant emotions that they might not typically be able to sit with, um, and, and explore those. Which, for somebody with PTSD, they may not have ever been able to talk about the trauma. So they can't do talk therapy if they can't talk about the trauma. MDMA. Um, helps people work in what's called a window of tolerance. The window of tolerance is not being hyper-aroused and being overwhelmed, but not being able to use your masking response either and being forced to experience the emotion as well. So they're able to experience it in a way that allows them to, um, to, yeah, basically to work through the trauma and reprocess that trauma. And, and you know, it also, cre- unlike classic psychedelics, MDMA really creates a sense of um, of trust, so which is really helpful in therapy as well, because. We, we know the best prediction of whether somebody does well in a psychotherapy, it's not what psychotherapy they receive. In fact, it's whether there's a good therapeutic alliance between the, the clinician and the patient. If you've got a good therapeutic alliance, regardless of what approach you're taking, you're more likely to get a positive outcome. So by, by enhancing trust um, through the drug-assisted sessions, that in turn too is likely to enhance the therapeutic alliance and, and, and result in st- some of the clinical outcomes as well be responsible for that's very
0: well explained Uh, friends you may remember my conversation with dr david spiegel leading stanford psychiatrist who spoke to me about the underrated benefits of hypnotherapy a clinically backed method supported by over 400 research papers proven to reduce stress and anxiety help focus and reinforce new habits David has taken this research and his clinical practice and created a digital experience in an app called Reverie, where you can access all his sessions whenever you need them. People all over the world are now using Reverie to quit smoking, gain control over other addictions, reduce physical pain, feel more relaxed and improve their mental health. I've been using it to improve my sleep and I can't recommend it more. The proof community members can use Reverie for 30 days totally free with a guest pass. Just visit reverie.com forward slash the proof. That's R-E-V-E-R-I dot com forward slash the proof to redeem. I've heard stories of people hallucinating like they're on DMT during a deep meditation or during specific breath work. Is it possible that we can tap into these? And the same benefits that psychedelic medicines like psilocybin may provide through deep meditation or specific breath work like holotropic breath work, for example?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in the in the 60s, when or maybe even earlier, the late 50s, particularly when philosophers like Aldous Huxley were starting to experiment with mescaline, some of the naysayers said that it was a shortcut. Essentially, um, you know, People that are doing the work with, with various meditation or other contemplative practices like yoga, they, they're climbing the mountain the old school way. It's hard work. And when they get to the top of the mountain, they appreciate the view because they've they've done the work to get there. Psychedelics are essentially a helicopter ride to the top. You get to see what's up there, and then you drop back to the bottom again. Now, I, I, I like this analogy, um, not, not so much because I'm a naysayer, but I, I think a lot of people struggle to to um, engage in those contemplative practices for long enough to ever get to the top of the mountain. And so I think being able to get a, a snapshot of what it looks like up there may provide encouragement to continue to engage in those contemplative practices and get the benefits from that.
0: Is there something at all to be said? And, and I'm not sure where I sit on this. I kind of haven't really made up my mind and I don't know know enough about it. That's why I'm asking you. But Is there something to be said about gaining mastery through years and decades of mindfulness where you slowly learn about yourself and have time to kind of come to terms with parts of yourself and the world where the mind has enough time to kind of adjust and mature versus you know, just being thrown into this acute situation where you're sort of bombarded with a whole lot of new ideas and thoughts in a, you know, a fraction of the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, and I think ultimately, um, we we need to ensure as we move forward, rolling these out as treatments, that these things are being paired together. I, I think they go together quite well, and I think the. The practice and the the discipline and dedication that comes with these um, comes with these contemplative practices is useful for people having a psychedelic experience. Like doing that work beforehand is going to make the journey a little bit easier. Um, I, I guess the you know what what I was saying with the mountain is um, some people get frustrated with. The progress that they're making, and I think that's where psychedelics can augment the progress by just giving them a snapshot of of what of what they could achieve if they continue to engage in these practices. but there's there's a lot of similarity between deep medi- meditative states and and a psychedelic experience.
0: What was it that kind of delayed Australia's progress in psychedelic science? So thinking back to that twenty seventeen talk that that you did. What are the types of things that got in the way and kind of inhibited progress in that area and perhaps could be kind of key learnings, I guess, for the scientific community uh, abroad with respect to, you know, not delaying potentially very helpful therapies for patients you know, across the spectrum of conditions that exist in the future?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a lot of Australian culture and and not just the broader Australian culture, but also academic culture in Australia. Um, ultimately, in academic culture, if you want to become a professor, the fastest way to become a professor is um, to do your PhD with a large research group or, or a laboratory. A lab, and uh, from there, do postdoctoral work with with that lab because they'll be producing you know hundreds of papers and you'll get your name on all of those papers. the The least effective way to do it is what I've done, which is to go out and try and do your own thing and and try to set this up from the ground up. it's it's not it's not, you, know, I wouldn't I, I don't recommend it if if um your your goal is um, you know the pro- promotion pathway in academia. and related to that is, um, the fact that we were struggling to get senior academics on board with this idea in those early days, because now with people like Susan Russell supporting this, um, and and you know other other researchers around Australia that are senior researchers, it it change it's a game changer. Um, and in terms of why, you know, with with say mid-year res, mid-career researchers, um, you know, back in 2010, I was an early research, early career researcher, barely even because I hadn't finished my PhD yet. Um, you know, so so I was speaking with with mid career researchers, and many of them would say, "This is a good idea. We should do this," but there's no way I'm doing it. Um, there's no way I'm putting my head above the pulpit, and. So they would have quite conversations with me about how it was a great idea, but there was no way publicly that they were going to do anything with it because I, and this is the, the broader Australian cultural part. I think um, you know, this, there's within our culture we have tall poppy syndrome, and um, the best thing to do in Australia to get on, to get to get on with things is is to not stand out, is to conform, and hence why some of those mid mid year, mid, mid-career researchers weren't willing to put their head above the pulpit because um, they were worried like a tall poppy that they would get cut down.
0: And does that stem back to, to stigma with regards to the use of, of psychedelic medicines and perhaps misuse and perhaps some of the history going back to the 1960s with Timothy Leary at Harvard?
1: Well, Yes. But it, it, there's also something unique about the Australian culture because this stuff, you know, this research was already underway in the US and the UK and um, uh, Czech, the Czech Republic. All, all over the world, this this stuff was happening and we still didn't have anything happening in Australia. And I think that was the Australian cultural part. Something I realised, um, I was actually doing a podcast several years ago, probably around 2016, 2017, with somebody from the UK and I said to him that the, the, that that Australians are actually a very a very conservative people in general. Um, we see this at the moment with the pill testing debate in Victoria and and, and other issues. We, we te- as in general we tend to be very conservative. And this podcaster from the UK was quite taken aback by that because all of the Australians he met had been very progressive. But of course they're the Australians that are travelling overseas, and and so you're not getting an accurate representation of, of your average Aussie. And so I, I thought that was quite – I found that quite eye-opening to, 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 to sort of realise how conservative we are and the way that feeds into the tall poppy syndrome. Um, in terms of the stigma, at, at an academic level, it, it was less less about stigma per se. It's something more deep-seated than stigma, essentially. Um, you know, since – in in Australia since the 80s possibly the 70s I, I can't go back as far as that but essentially since the 80s um, research drug research in Australia is focused on pathologizing drugs so drugs are bad drugs are harmful we need to demonstrate evidence for why we need to have them continue why we need continued prohibition of these drugs and you know, 99% of government-funded research was research that was focused on on demonstrating these harms. But when we look at the problem with this is, as as a drug researcher myself, the problem with this is, when when we look at the population of people that are using any given drug, most people actually don't experience harm. Most people are experimenting um, or using in a very recreational way in which they're not experiencing harm it's only the very pointy end of people that experience harm and even less people who become dependent on any given drug. So by not by focusing on you know the one percent that become dependent, which is don't that's actually not a stat it depends on the drug that we're talking about. but if we're focusing on that pointy end, then it means we're failing to understand what's protecting other people from getting to that stage. so I, I hope that, with with the way that we're thinking about drugs now as potential medicines rather than just drugs that it might open up more research into understanding resilience and understanding what it is that allows people to use drugs without experiencing harm and without experiencing dependence
0: do you think that that, that sort of more conservative approach or viewpoint is the logical viewpoint and i say that uh, with respect to, to the typical person and the the media that they're exposed to. So what I'm getting at here is are we extra conservative because of the way that our media has portrayed drugs across society?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because basically what what you're kind of asking is is our is media reporting a reflection of society? Is it a mirror that sort of Reflecting back to society, or is the media—is um, it sort of the reverse causation where the, the uh, media are influencing the way we think about things? And I think it's probably a bit of both.
0: What would you say to someone who is just extremely sceptical about the use of psychedelic medicines? You know, perhaps they're thinking, okay, so there's there's people with mental health conditions that aren't being helped or completely helped. I understand that. With the current treatments that are in the guidelines you know these people need help but they are also a very vulnerable population that might find themselves jumping at you know whatever is being offered to them as a as a kind of solution and this is kind of the way that snake oil salesmen are able to kind of ca- come in and capture a market you know western medicine isn't providing you know a, a sort of uh, robust effective treatment plan for for a segment of the population and they, they go looking elsewhere.
1: I would say that's healthy. I, I think it's healthy to have some scepticism. And what concerns me as we continue to move forward in Australia is um, people moving into this space that are overhyping the situation, that are ignoring the potential harms uh, because that doesn't, that that's not helpful from, from my perspective. Um, I, I've, I'm increasingly being called a skeptic myself, and I'm somebody that's been working in the area for a long time, but I would say I've got a healthy level of skepticism. Like we talked about, you know, how many people, how how effective are the treatments? We don't know. Not everybody you ask will give that answer. Um, Some people would just give you the raw numbers without providing some nuance around why these numbers aren't actually particularly accurate. So uh, yeah, and, and our experience at Prism. In the early days was the average member of the community did understand the difference between the use of these drugs recreationally and the use of them therapeutically. And we've sort of seen Australia mature a bit with medical cannabis. And so I think the broader community is already aware that these are these are two different things. So um, they're, they're, the stigma didn't seem to be coming from the community at large. It was more to do with the, the academic institutions within which we were trying to embed these research projects. But ultimately... Yeah, a bit 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 of scepticism is 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 healthy, and I think I think people should remain sceptical of these experimental treatments. Yes, Australia might be sort of leading the pack in terms of loosening the restrictions around accessing them outside of clinical trials, but ultimately these are experimental treatments. We don't know how they work. We don't know how effective they are. So yeah, I I think. Um, I, you know if I was speaking to to a patient um, i would i would I would encourage them to be a critical thinker about the information they're looking at and in, to ensure that they're able to make an informed choice, that their their choice is informed by good evidence and not hype.
0: If someone is you know quite skeptical and perhaps perhaps Historically or previously they've, they've thought of these drugs as you know, disgraceful or, or maybe they even think people that use them are a disgrace to society. You know, I'm, using, I'm using language that I've heard in conversations. Um, what types of questions should we be asking ourselves to be a little more open-minded here?
1: I'm not sure if I've got a good answer for that, but I've got a short story um, to, to exemplify what you're talking about. When uh, when I was, I don't know, nearing maybe nearing the end of my undergraduate studies, I was at my father or my uncle's 50th, 60th birthday party, and one of my dad's friends came up to me and asked me what I was studying and what I was doing, and I explained, you know, I want to become a psychologist and work with people help people who are experiencing problems with substances, his response was, I've got the solution for you and it'll only cost 10 cents. It's called a bullet. And I didn't know how to respond to that and I still don't. Well, I just just feel like when you come across somebody like that, maybe you're not going to change the person's mind. It's like a conspiracy theorist. In fact, what you end up doing is further consolidating their own position by arguing um, against it. But, you know, for people that are less – entrenched in their views opening up some conversations like we did at the start around the impact that alcohol is having on the community and the fact that alcohol is a drug um you know most 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 Australians don't perceive alcohol to be a drug it's it's something different it's it's not a drug it's not a medicine it's not a food it's something separate altogether and so um trying to open up some of those conversations I think I think essentially that that with somebody that that is not entrenched with their view and that that has some open-mindedness. It's about fostering curiosity so that they go away and do their own research and and start to access some of that information themselves.
0: This is a little bit of a departure from your area of work here, but related to, I guess, some apprehension or uh, resistance from the community towards psychedelic medicine. Have you ever given thought to the role of religion here? And my understanding, which is very high level, I'm not a religious person, but my understanding is that the Bible refers to mind-altering drugs as sorcery. And that if you practice sorcery along with other things like hatred and jealousy, which sort of are in that same section of the Bible, you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. How much do you think religion um, influences the current narrative Surrounding mind-altering psychedelics,
1: I think it has more of an impact when we're talking about psychoactive drugs in general. Um, you know, there's a there's a moral narrative for which the church has a large voice. Um, and and it can go both ways. It can be that that people are are morally corrupt, and that's why they're using drugs. Or it may be that the drugs morally corrupt a person, and, and then the drugs have the agency. But I think when I'm talking about psychedelics, yeah, with some fundamentalist um, religious people, you know, from from all schools of religion, Islam, Christianity, that they will take a similar position to what you've said, because essentially fundamentalists are reading the text for the text there there's no there's no assumed nuance or um understanding of the historical context f- f- when these th- when these words were actually written and there's also evidence in the bible of psychoactive substance use uh, possibly psychedelic so for example um th- there's reference to manna which some people have thought could be mu- uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms even amanita muscaria um there's a couple of books that have been that, that have been written on this, looking at um, looking at sort of the flesh of the gods and the way that psychedelics probably led to the inception of religion. So initially, in most religions, people would have been having a personal experience through using a psychedelic, and and you know experiencing God directly. And then over time, um, the way organised religion operates means that. Um, that people become the conduit to God. So you've now got a priest or or minister that um, is the conduit to God. And I I think the reason some religious folks that are are even moderate religious folks would be concerned is, you know, why why go to church and and use the minister as a conduit when I can take five grams of mushrooms and dial a direct line to God?
0: Yeah, that poses a bit of a moral kind of conundrum. For someone to work through, uh,
1: like, likewise, um, I, I think a spiritual framework is actually important for people who are undergoing a psychedelic experience. In the the first, basically, the first study of psilocybin since the the sixties and seventies at John Hopkins, it was a requirement that participants had a spiritual framework um, to, to help them. Essentially, frame their experience, so they've got something to hang the experience off. So I think having a spiritual framework is is actually an important thing for people coming into a psychedelic experience. And many people that, that maybe come into the experience as an atheist come out of the experience at least agnostic. Um, you know, they they might not be um, sp- particularly spiritual or religious afterwards, but they're certainly more agnostic that maybe there's something more out there than than just the material world.
0: Yeah, earlier you mentioned there's an association between a spiritual experience that's induced from a psychedelic and the efficacy of that treatment. We didn't double-click on that. What is a spiritual experience?
1: So typically it's called a mystical experience um, rather than a spiritual experience, but one basically one and the same. I'm, I'm splitting hairs here. But there are tools that measure these. So hence why we can look at the correlation between the degree of mystical experience and the degree of um, reduction in depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms. It typically uh, tends to be, there tends to be a sense of reverence um, that this is something sacred that you're experiencing. There's a... Um, God, the, the words just fallen out of my head. I have trouble with this with this word. And it's quite funny because the word I'm trying to think of actually means that you can't put things in words. And I, I always get it confused with another word. And if that other word gets in my head first, then that's the and now I've got ephemeral. it's not ephemeral, it's the the other word that um that that won't pop into my head now. Um but yeah, essentially people find that language alone is is um is inadequate to describe the experience. There's a sense of oneness and connectedness that all is one, and we're all interconnected. Um, I mean, they, they, are the, they are the 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 primary features of, of a mystical experience, and mystical experiences that contain those elements uh, occur spontaneously without psychedelics in some people. Um, Sometimes through a medical condition, certain types of epilepsy can produce these mystical experiences, and sometimes for for no sort of explained reason. And and you know maybe some of the religions, um, maybe some of them weren't due to people's psychedelic experiences, but rather these sort of spontaneous mystical experiences that people have.
0: I think that word that you were perhaps looking for uh, is ineffable. That's it, ineffable.
1: I don't know why have <laughs> as, as, yeah, as soon as I've got it there, it, it, ineffable and, and ephemeral in my brain just cross over for some reason, and it's very annoying for me.
0: What exciting psychedelic science is currently happening in Australia? You mentioned before it's experimental, there's still a lot more research to be done. what What can we kind of expect to see be published in the in the coming years?
1: Um, Well, a couple of studies have recently been completed, so we'll be able to see some of the results um, being published in, in the near future. Um, I mentioned the, the psilocybin study at St Vincent's Hospital, um, and, and I think in that case, I, th- I think the reason the mystical experience is important, and the mechanism for action is going to be different for different conditions. So with depression, not you know maybe it's around the, the relaxation of those rigid beliefs that come just naturally comes with a mystical experience. But with somebody that, that's in a situation where they're dying and they're anxious about dying, and they're, they're anxious about what's going to happen for their family and everything that comes with that, that sense of oneness that I was just saying could be really important for them to sort of – a lot of people um, in these studies that have looked at existential distress have reported that after the psychedelic experience, people just seem to accept their fate, that they're not fighting it anymore and that that, that they get this just this sense that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, so there's a couple of studies that are finished. It's going to be a while, I think, until some of the really interesting stuff um, is is even happening in Australia. A lot of it's still in the very early stages. There's a project at University of Sydney looking at uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy with people with PTSD that's comorbid with substance use. So that was... Obviously of interest to me, given the conversation we've had today. Um, Also at University of Sydney, they're proposing to do a study using psilocybin to treat eating disorders like anorexia. Um, in Queensland, there's a study uh, looking at people with grief and using psilocybin as a way to assist with grief. I think that's that's sort of world-leading research as well. I'm not aware of other research uh, with that sort of focus. Um, there's, and there's research uh, that, that hasn't commenced yet at the University of Melbourne, um, uh, looking at MDMA as a potential treatment for people with young adults with autism who can currently experience social anxiety. So, as a way to sort of treat social anxiety among people with autism, I think that's fascinating as well. Um, and the reason, partly the reason, is there's so many interesting projects that are sort of almost up and running or have just started is a couple of years ago, the federal government. Um, put $15 million out to tender um, through the NHMRC and uh, a number of the projects that I've just mentioned uh, were recipients of a small part of, of that funding and as it allowed um, so some of the very novel research that's happening in Australia. Essentially, the the, the the funding program that the government allocated this $15 million to was for novel um, novel research projects. So not just replicating um, what's been done overseas already, but doing something quite unique and different.
0: So there's, there's quite a few different studies, but probably five, 10 years away, I guess, from getting results from, from many of those with how long the trials take and then analysis of, of results. Have you given thought to, to what the future might look like here? for For a person in Australia with a mental health condition that is resistant to psychotherapy, what do you think the treatment paradigm will look like in ten or fifteen years from now?
1: Well, I think as we were talking about, we we need to first address the issue of supply, um and one way in which this might be addressed with uh, the the psychedelic treatments and MDMA treatments. Probably more so with, with psilocybin than, M, M, than MDMA is uh, stepping away from requiring clinical psychologists to provide um, parts of the treatment because with psilocybin, um, you know, it's a sort of a six hour six hour session, and if you've got two clin or possibly a clin psych and a psychiatrist in the room, that's very expensive. And to be frank, I, I don't think you need that level of, of expertise in the room because when somebody's under the influence of psilocybin, they, they struggle to talk. Um, you know, they, they just need some reassurance, someone to hold their hand. It, it's it's really just um, taking it's, – it's trip sitting is what we do in the, the harm reduction community. You know, there's services like Dancewise that have been – Offering trip sitting services for, for twenty plus years at festivals in Victoria and, and um, other states have similar services and, and those folks that are providing the trip sitting aren't, aren't mental health clinicians they are peers who have had their own experience and understand how difficult that can be particularly in a festival environment um, and are able to just hold space with somebody so that they feel safe and communicate that the effects you know you're you're feeling this way because you've taken a drug. And those, the drug effects will wear off. We just need to wait it out, and I'm going to be here with you to help you wait that out. Uh, so, so I think we're going to have to look at um, different models of treatment provision to overcome the issue with um, a lack of supply of mental health clinicians. Another novel approach might be group therapies, so dosing people you know, in groups of 5 or 10 or something like that. Um, and of course, the research first needs to take place to see whether that's safe and, and effective. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but I, I know that sort of research is underway elsewhere in the world. I'm not sure about Australia, but certainly elsewhere in the world they They're starting to investigate that because other parts of the world um, are are – they recognise that these are going to be treatments that are going to be mainstreamed eventually. So we need to, you know, think about how we can do this economically. Um, because as we've said, $25,000 for a treatment is is simply not feasible for most people. Um, it's out of most people's reach. So we need to come uh, come up with ways of reducing the cost. And, 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 you know, a key way of doing that will be um, will be through looking at the model of service provision. I, I think a number of countries are, are watching Australia at the moment and they're going to learn lessons from what we do wrong as they move to implement this as, as a mainstream treatment. So lots of eyes on Australia at the moment to see um, what works well and what doesn't work well. And ultimately, we need to sort out the supply issue. Um, and I don't know what the answer to that is, but we, that, that, that's, that seems to be um, one of the, the key issues here.
0: Do you think with your understanding of psychedelic science and also of drug use, and drug-related harm, that if we are able to achieve those things and improve access to various psychedelic medicines and other compounds like MDMA, that we would see a significant reduction in substance use disorders in Australia and drug-related harm?
1: No, I think... The 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 cause of many of the, the the problems with mental health and substance use are what are called social determinants. They're they're things in society that predispose people to experience mental health conditions. Um, to it's to do with, uh, you know. Increasing divide between the wealthy and the not wealthy in Australia, um, homelessness, you know, psychedelic treatments are not going to fix the homelessness problem. As I said, I've, I've seen CEOs of companies overseas, um, you know, saying that they're going to fix these problems with psychedelics. Psychedelics aren't the answer to homelessness. Homes are the answer to homelessness. Um, and and th- th- so there's lots of... That there's lots of problems in society that, that are addressable because essentially what we do most of the time in Australia when it comes to mental health is people fall off the cliff, become unwell, and there's an ambulance at the bottom that takes cuts them off to treatment. There might be a wait time and a queue, you know, ambulance queuing happening because of the supply issues, but essentially people are falling off the cliff and the ambulance picks them up at the bottom. It would be far better – to build a fence at the top of the cliff with a sign on it saying dangerous, don't fall off um, rather than just continuing to pick people up that fall off the cliff. And I think that's like, like the supply issue with mental health. It's, it's, it's a far more wicked problem. It's far more difficult problem to address because governments are quite short sighted. They're, they're focused on being reelected and a lot of these things are not necessarily popular with all voters and It takes time, you know, years for us to see the benefits of some of the changes that could be made that we know would reduce the incidence of mental health in Australia. So
0: that fence uh, represents, you know, sorting out some of these inequities that exist across society and other things. Most of what we've been speaking about is the use of certain compounds, MDMA and psychedelics for people with mental health conditions. What about keeping people from developing mental health conditions in the first place by using these compounds? In other words, is there any evidence to suggest that the incorporation of such compounds can help with the erection of that fence that you're talking about?
1: I'm not sure there's much good evidence for that. There's certainly a lot of hype around microdosing. That's the first thing I was thinking of when you were sort of talking there. But it's not even clear whether microdosing is more than a placebo effect at the moment. The evidence is very mixed, and outside of that, again, I think it's the structural changes that are going to see far more impact on the incidence of mental health than, um, than than psychedelics could ever do. Maybe maybe the way in which maybe the way in which psychedelics help here is is indirectly. Um, one of my honours students, for example, looked at um, the the degree to which people have had a, a, a psychedelic occasion, mystical experience and their pro-environmental behaviour, because there's an assumption that people that have had a strong psychedelic experience are going to be more caring of the environment because we're all one, etc. And she found some evidence um, that supported her hypothesis. So, um, and, and I guess when in my conversations informal conversations with with Kelly my student um, I was very much of the position that that psychedelics are not going to fix the world's climate problems um, but through through those informal conversations I, I guess I've softened a bit to see how um, if, if more people have had that experience then more people that then then the conversation more broadly becomes easier to have because more people are on the same wavelength. I th- and I think with mental health, maybe it's the same. If if more people are, are are sort of progressive in their thinking as a result of having a psychedelic experience, then that could lead to those social structural changes that are required to, to decrease the incidence.
0: Yeah, that would be an interesting study design to contemplate. <laughs> Just try and tease that out. <laughs> Where does decriminalisation fall within the list of possible things that may
1: reduce drug use or drug-related harm? Well, it's 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 the most it's it's the easiest thing that we could do right now um, that that could that would have a, you know a significant impact on on um, drug-related harm in in the Australian community in Western Australia where I'm currently based. Um, cannabis was decriminalized. I can't give you the dates, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, cannabis was decriminalised here. There was no increase in crime. There was no adverse effects from it. But then a Liberal government got in and um, sort of rescinded the, the work that the Labor government had done and overturned the decriminalisation despite no evidence that it had caused any harm. But there was, there was evidence that it was actually having a benefit, though, because if you're a young person and you're... You know, you get caught with some cannabis, you're charged, and and you know now have a criminal record for possession. That then has an impact on your developmental trajectory and what you are able to do or believe you're able to do after that. And you know, like somebody who's um, been on a diet and and has a hamburger out of the blue, there's you know you kind of go screw it. I've, I've you know this I've already got I've already had the one hamburger. I might as well just give up on the diet now. Screw it. I've already got a criminal record. Who cares anymore if I get more on that criminal record because I've already got one? So, um, yeah, I, th- I think decriminalisation is, is is a sensible first step to take, and it will have an impact on on all of the different drug use communities that exist within Australia, including the underground scene that I was talking about. I think if you're an underground practitioner and something goes terribly wrong with somebody, Because you have supplied an illegal drug and you're essentially then seen by the law as a drug dealer, you're going to be far less inclined to ring an ambulance or or maybe there's a delay in seeking help. Whereas if things are decriminalised, then it allows us to be a bit more open about some of these conversations and there's there's less – yeah – Less trying to, to hide what we're doing, and, and that's an issue with, you know with other drug use as well, where people are trying to hide their drug use. So I think if we can be more open about it, we've seen this in Portugal where the, their education is very, um, you know, it's an adult to adult conversation, and because it's all been decriminalized, that they're able to have far more frank conversations, and consequently, um, young people there are less inclined to use drugs because they've had the opportunity to have those open conversations.
0: Yeah, what are the the major takeaways from from Portugal? From from my understanding, they had a very large heroin kind of crisis problem back in the the 1990s which then led to decriminalization. What's happened to heroin use and you
1: know drug-related harm in Portugal? It's decreased. So well, it's it's more nuanced than that. Compared, to, there's been a slight increase in drug use in Portugal, but there has in other European countries as well. And the increase in Portugal is significantly less than other European countries. So, in some ways, we can say there's been a, a decrease in, in drug use, sort of at a at a net level. Um, as I say, you know, drug education has has changed there. I think that they. That They really have generated a lot of evidence for the rest of the world to say, regardless of whether or not it reduces harm, what we can confidently say from Portugal is if we decriminalise, more people are not going to use drugs and more people are not going to experience drug-related harm, because that's one of the arguments. I mean, we've seen decriminalisation recently in the ACT, and uh, you know, Michaelia Cash standing up in Parliament talking about everybody going to Canberra now to use cocaine and ecstasy and everything else. That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. People aren't going to. going to. Uh, Canberra's not going to become a drug tourism destination just because drugs are decriminalised there. It would be different if they were legalised and being sold from from shops. But that's that's not the case. I think there's a lot of conflation in the community around decriminalisation and legalisation and not understanding the difference between the two.
0: Yeah. So perhaps we can kind of underscore that. So decriminalisation is you know in the in the ACT um the Australian capital territory here where canberra is if i was walking around the streets and i got caught with you know a gram or half a gram of cocaine or there you know other drugs that are on that list like heroin or psilocybin there's there's varying amounts i understand but if i was caught with that amount or less rather than that being illegal and me having a criminal record and perhaps facing jail time I would be fined without a criminal record. Is that what
1: happens? Yeah, so there's the nuance here. So tech, you are still it is still illegal. So the drugs are still illegal, but the way it's being treated is through a different process. So rather than it being a criminal offence, it now becomes a civil offence. A good example, a good analogy is um, speeding. If you get caught speeding, you know, provided you're not doing three hundred kilometres an hour. Um, it's treated as a civil offense. You get a speeding fine and you pay the fine, but it doesn't go on your criminal record. So it's treating drugs in the same way that we treat traffic offenses.
0: Got you. So you're still breaking the law, you're just not criminalized for that. Where and and legalization would be would be making the production and supply and retail of the
1: product legal. Correct. Well, <clears throat> there there's even a there's even a uh, nuance to that so in the ACT they've kind of legalized cannabis but they haven't legalized cannabis so you're allowed to legally grow i think 2 or 5 plants in your home um you're legally allowed to carry an ounce of cannabis on your person legally but you cannot sell it selling it is breaking law and even, um, even swapsies is, is prohibited as well. You can't swap it or barter or anything like that. So I think that's – I really like the ACT, not only because it's the most progressive state or territory in Australia when it comes to drug law reform, but also um, because it provide, it allows us to have these nuanced conversations around what is legalisation. And, and that, that you can see that it's a continuum from prohibition through to decriminalisation through to sort of the ACT-type legalisation. Through to, you know, what we've got in the US with cannabis in in most states now, where. Um Adults can purchase cannabis from brick and mortar store completely legally, and even as we move up that last end of the continuum, there's there's various ways that that can be done as well. So in Uruguay, cannabis is legal, um, and it can be only but it can be only purchased from a pharmacy, and the cannabis is produced by the government. So there's not companies. You know, one of the, the problems in some U.S. states is you know, capitalism has got hold of this now, and it's Typical capitalism. There's there's advertising and sales and everything that comes with that. Uruguay has really clamped down on that. Um, places like Spain have cannabis clubs, so it's a bit like the ACT, but you're allowed to do swapsies. No no money can exchange hands, but you can swap plants and things like that. Um, and and even looking at the US with um you know with, with their legalized model of, of of cannabis sales, there's there's big differences depending on which state you're in. You know some states allow for It's basically open slather, whereas others have restrictions on advertising, restrictions on how much you can sell to people and and those sorts of things. So I think in particular with with cannabis in Australia, the question isn't should we legalise cannabis or not? The question is what's the best model of legalisation that minimises harm best?
0: Does the decriminalisation of drugs, so so what ACT have have passed, the legislation there that's been passed, does that lead or is there any data showing that that leads to less money being spent on enforcement and therefore more money can go into healthcare and education to kind of reduce demand?
1: I don't think we're there with the ACT yet, but certainly in other jurisdictions like Portugal, yes, they've demonstrated a significant saving um, from the supply control efforts, essentially the Law enforcement efforts, and that money has been diverted into not only education but treatment and rehabilitation. One of the things that's made um, the treatment services work so well in Portugal is because they've been able to to shift that money from law enforcement to to treatment and rehabilitation. In Portugal, when somebody goes, when somebody's exiting a treatment service, um, they are offered a job in a different geographical region, because we know people are more likely to relapse. Of course, people relapse if they're using heroin in a house with four other people that use heroin. They go into treatment, they come out of treatment, go back into that house again. Of course, they relapse. Like it, It's a no-brainer. Um, the, the fact we even wonder why they relapse is, is, is a concern. So by... By placing them in a different geographical region, that reduces the risk of relapse, allows them to create a new community of people who aren't using drugs. And the reason they can do this is they provide tax incentives to employers to employ people coming out of treatment so that... It's sort of a win-win situation. The employer gets a tax benefit from it or you know get, essentially gets some money for it, and the person coming out of treatment has a job which is really important for for meaning and everything else that we know is important for recovery. And on top of that they're they're they're, they're moving to a different area, so they're not going to have all the same contacts.
0: How long do you think until we know that the new legislation in the ACT has been successful in Reducing crime, drug use, overdose, etc.
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to take a little while to, to do that. The easier thing to show is that it's not causing more harm. Um, it will take a bit longer to then show how harm may have been reduced and, and what sorts of harms have been reduced.
0: Where do you sit on the kind of spectrum of legalization versus prohibition? Is there is there a world where legalize, legalization? May actually result in less drug use and less overdose
1: yeah I, I I think it's complex, and we we don't know the answer to it, but I think it is absolutely possible, and it depends again on the model of legalisation. so it's not about whether we we legalise and regulate, it's about how we go about it. and so I think um, I think one one model possible model is to to regulate the drugs um, dependent on potential harms, um, potential for dependence and things like that. So maybe if if we legalised all drugs, maybe you could access heroin, but you have to go to your GP to get a script um, and you can only get it from the pharmacy. Maybe MDMA is over the counter in a pharmacy and, and, you know, there's only one brand that's produced by the government, no advertising, et cetera. And I I think if we lived in a world like that, um, we would see less use of drugs like alcohol, And given alcohol is probably one of the worst drugs that we could possibly uses humans. It's it's neurotoxic, it's toxic to the liver, causes liver damage, it causes several cancers. Um, it's just a terrible drug to be using. It's the, you know, when we talk about most drugs, we talk about um, you said a gram, half a gram of cocaine. That that's more than one dose in, in half a gram of cocaine. When people are getting when people are drinking, one standard drink is 10 grams of ethanol. And 10 grams of ethanol doesn't really touch the sides for most people. So when you're getting a bit of buzz, you're having 40, 50 grams of alcohol. There's no other drug that we take in such large quantities for a psychoactive effect. And so, you know, if if less people are using alcohol and and because they're using uh, drugs like MDMA instead, then physically um, we'll see less harm. But also, um, you know, the nature of alcohol in in terms of the way it disinhibits people and increases violence. You know, if two people are – if you see two people out in the street having a fight um, and you, you had to guess which drug they were on, are they on alcohol or have they taken MDMA? Certainly not MDMA if they're punching you up.
0: I'm not sure the alcohol industry would would love the sound of that.
1: No, I've, I've got a. I've got a um, I think it's actually a meme that I, I use in some presentations. I don't think it's a real sign, but it's a, a mock up of a Budweiser ad, a billboard, Budweiser billboard saying, um, don't use drugs. That way you've got t- more time to drink alcohol. Mm. The alcohol industry absolutely has a vested interest here.
0: How would legalization affect the kind of underground production of these? these drugs and I guess an entire industry where there's a lot of tax that's not being collected, for example.
1: Yeah. So it's unlikely to eradicate the black market. Um, Look at tobacco. There's a black market for tobacco in Australia because you know, taxes become so high that that it creates a, a place for a black market. So I think there there will always be a black market, even with um, various models of regulation. And we've seen this in, in the US in states with cannabis, um, where there's still a black market for cannabis, Um Sometimes even synthetic cannabis, because it's it's so cheap, it's been sort of sold to um, vulnerable populations as as a cheap drug that they can use because it can be produced far cheaper than than the the legal cannabis that's available from dispensaries. So it will never you'll never eliminate a black market, but it will certainly put a huge dent in it um you know we talked about the alcohol industry having a vested interest in maintaining the status quo of prohibition um the the you know criminal the criminal syndicates have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo as well because australia in particular is such a ludic- um such a lucrative market for them to be to be working in they they're making billions of dollars through importing drugs into australia and and you know wholesaling that, and then profits get made down, down the line as people on sale.
0: Stephen, this has been fascinating, super, super interesting. Um, I'm fascinated by how this is going to play out over the next 10, 20, 30 years from a legislation perspective, from a science perspective on novel compounds for for different conditions. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and, and all of the wonderful work that you're doing was there anything that you wanted to add, or something that perhaps we we missed that you wanted to kind of touch on before we land this plane?
1: No, but I think you know, just just as you were sort of saying, it'd be interesting. I, I, it will be interesting to see how things uh, sort of play out over the next twenty or thirty years. I really hope that in thirty years from now, um, the community looks back at what we were doing with regard to prohibition in the same way we look. Um at other things in history and and just wonder, how could we be so um, how could we be so barbaric as to think this was a good solution? I hope that's where we're at in thirty years from now.
0: Are there any books or resources that you might recommend if someone's interested in decriminalisation or prohibition, whether it's a book or a documentary, something that we can kind of point them towards?
1: Probably my my first recommendation would be um chasing the scream. Um, I I want to give the author's name but I've got a feeling I'll get it slightly wrong Um, and and there may have even been some sort of a documentary series developed around that book that's a really good resource to, to understand in a very accessible way how we got to the situation we've got now because people often assume prohibition is is something that's been with us forever but it wasn't that way heroin was a prescription drug up until the 1950s when Australia had the highest per capita rate of heroin and the government fixed that by prohibiting it. Um, Prohibition is actually a fairly new experiment, but we just assume that's the way things have been forever and they haven't been that way. Um, There's a a book on um, methamphetamine by Matt Knoffs, which sort of provides a a similar um, picture, but more localised to Australia. So um, Chasing the Scream is by... Johan Hari, Johan Hari, who's um, from the UK, whereas uh, Matt Nofts is from Sydney, and so that's, a, I guess, that's a local, a, a local narrative, and and so looking at the Australian, it's fascinating. Look at the Australian. Uh, history through colonization and the way alcohol has become so intricately embedded and woven into society that it's, um, you know, you, you really notice it when you, if you stop drinking for a while, if you do Fedfast or something like that, that's when you, you realize just how deeply in, interwined alcohol is in our culture.
0: Did you say there that prohibition reduced heroin? yeah it
1: did because prior to that use. prior to that you could get it, it might have been even over the counter at the pharmacy so instead of being able to go down the pharmacy and pick up your heroin like you could in 1951 in 1952 they just banned heroin which meant you couldn't go to the pharmacy and get it anymore so of course that's going to lead to to decreased use and presumably um, GPs would have then had to prescribe some people other opiates to use as a replacement to prevent them from going into opiate withdrawal, which is what we do with methadone and buprenorphine and drugs like that at the moment, um, but yeah, it's essentially it's complex with with prohibition and and um, rates of drug use because. Yeah, you know, the, the concern from prohibitionists is that if we lift prohibition, everybody's going to go out and use drugs. And I don't think that's going to be the case, and it's not what we've seen overseas. Rather, it's more complex. Yes, there might be an increase in some use and a decrease in other use. What's really important is not the incidence of drug use, but the incidence of drug-related harm. And if we're decreasing drug-related harm, that's the important thing.
0: And you're of the view that if done correctly, moving from prohibition to legalization will result in less drug-related harm.
1: Yeah, less net harm, overall harm.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stephen. Where's the best place for us to send any of the listeners that want to connect with you online? Is it Twitter?
1: used to be I have I've since since Elon Musk taken over I've I've kind of tried to have, I mean it's a bit of a dumpster fire there now um I mean I have an account <laughs> there people are welcome to send me a DM um I'll be a bit slow on the response time I've I've kind of I guess I've transitioned to LinkedIn as a as a safer place to interact with people mm-hmm. um in a post Elon Musk X world um yeah so that would be the best way to to directly communicate um, if you're interested in some of the the, the work that I'm doing, um, my ACU profile sort of got papers that have been recently published. Um, I've mentioned psychedelic research in science and medicine, so prism.org.au um, recently became involved in. Um, Psychedelic Institute Australia, which um, is more for healthcare practitioners that are wanting to um, engage in training. And and we're working with the Australian Psychological Society to develop accredited training for for therapists wanting to work in this space. Um, For folks that are interested in drug policy reform, um, I'm on the board of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I'm a huge advocate of, of what Students for Sensible Drug Policy are doing both here in Australia and also internationally in terms of giving young people a voice to to question the status quo and giving them um, the, the, the courage, skills and, and what they need to be able to make submissions to Parliament, give evidence to Parliament. I've had former students give evidence to WA Parliament. Um, And finally, uh, I don't do much in this space anymore, but I found – 2016, I founded Alcohol and Other Drug Media Watch as a sort of a watchdog for media reporting, and um, I've just stretched too thin these days, and I've had to prioritize what I can do and what I can't do, and uh, yeah, they're not really doing a lot in that space at the moment, but AOD Media Watch is on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.
0: Great. We can put a link to all of that into the show notes thanks again it's been a real uh, it, delight to have I you hope with you us today this episode. if you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes be sure to hit that subscribe button on youtube and follow on apple or spotify finally thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health i look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode